HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. Actually, now on this journey through history. Uh, I have with me today a very special person, Nicole Taylor. Nicole Taylor. Well, you'll hear a lot more about things maybe you didn't know soon, but she is a cookbook author and she is a James Beard Award nominated food writer, a master home cook, a producer, and she has written for the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine. Her recent books are The Up South Cookbook and The Last OG Cookbook. Her newest book is what she's here to talk about today, and it's called Watermelons and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black Celebrations. Nicole is the executive producer of If We So Choose, a short documentary about the desegregation of an iconic Southern fast food joint, and she's the co-founder of Maroon, a marketplace and retreat house focused on radical rest for Black creatives. She lives in both New York City and Athens, Georgia, with her husband and son. And what you may not know is that she is the OG podcast host (laughs) here at Heritage Radio Network, where for several years she hosted and produced her show, Hot Grease. Nicole is with me today to talk about and celebrate her brand new cookbook, Watermelons and Redbirds, the very first cookbook to celebrate Juneteenth. Welcome, Nicole, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Linda. It's an honor to be on The Taste of the Past. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> some of us are still chugging away on the same old thing, you know, <laughs> but it's good. It's good. It's all good. Uh, what what drove you to to... You know, jump in and do this book on Juneteenth? That is a good question. I've been getting that question a lot. And I will have to say that 
you know, 10 plus years ago, if you had told me that I would be writing a cookbook, the first cookbook dedicated to Juneteenth, I would totally be like, nah, not me. Uh, I've been celebrating Juneteenth for more than a decade and I've been writing and or creating content. I, I remember when I had my show on Heritage Radio Network, every single year I would do a Juneteenth episode. So I like to say that this cookbook has been in me for a while. Uh, and my agent says, uh, I just, I always say, this is your idea. She's like, no, you, it, it was always in you. You just needed a little nudging. Um, so in earnest, I started in 2018 kind of coming up with an, an outline or a proposal for this book and really hunkered down uh, uh, in the winter of 2020 and, and started to do a full proposal. And I knew for certain that not only was I going to do this cookbook, but all Americans needed this cookbook after mm-hmm. the murder of George Floyd right. and the uprisings and the racial reckonings that we, we dealt with really all over the world. I was about to say the U.S., but all over the world in the summer of 2020. Yeah, it was what a what a, what a terrible, crazy time it was yeah, indeed. And well, it's nice that something so wonderful can come out of all that. And and this really is a, a terrific book is and it's it's just makes me feel up just to even look at it i mean it's you know and kaylin james uh the the photography she does from the cover to all the um all the portraits of family members and 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 everything else in the book as long with the artwork and and the drawings of everyone included it's just such a cheerful book it really is I'm glad truly. to hear that. And yeah, then, truly I a should, book of celebration, you know. It's, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Well, and I, and I should be clear. So Kaylin James actually did my headshots in recent months, but the, the book actually was shot by Beatrice DaCosta. And oh. Yeah, and so people in the food world probably have seen her work. She she was a photographer on uh, Chef J.J. Uh, Johnson and mm-hmm. Alexander Small's book Between Harlem and Heaven. So she did all the artwork for that book and she she shot for a lot of people, but that book actually won a Beard Award and honestly, that's what led me to her. I was like, ooh, she'd be great to shoot the book. So she shot the book, Victoria Granoff. If you are listening and you're like OG in the food world, um, <laughs> people will know Victoria Granoff. She's an amazing food stylist and Jerry Williams, who's a prop stylist, who's been around New York for quite some time doing amazing work. She was a prop stylist. And I like to say, I'm sorry, I got to give Jerry a little extra dose of love because she grew up celebrating Juneteenth. She's from Oklahoma. And so she got it. There was this kind of unspoken language when she was pulling props. And she did uh, just a brilliant job of making the book so vibrant and cheerful, all the things that you said. So it's it's been amazing to have such a talented team, also including George McCallman, who designed Brian Terry's Black Food. He was a creative director. He kind of came in at the end and designed the entire book. He did those drawings in the inside, and um, yeah, which are they're wonderful. They're just very yeah. charming. Charming is what they are. Yeah, yeah, and um, made he made sure that. You know, my vision, you know, stayed intact the entire time. So, no, it's been a journey and it was a team 
um, for sure. Helping what a treat to work with so many talented people. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit because we're talking about this wonderful cookbook and okay, here it is a cookbook, but no, it's more than a cookbook. It's, it's an acknowledgement oh. and to this celebration. Tell us, give us the background of Juneteenth. You say you've been celebrating for 10 years. Well, let's go back a little further than that. Yeah. On June 19th, 1865, General, General Major General Granger arrived on the island of Galveston and told more than 200,000 enslaved Black Texans that they were free. Uh, and the irony of that is that it was more than two years after President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. News didn't travel as fast <laughs> as it does today, yes. Yeah. And, and not only news didn't travel as fast, but you know, many scholars and, and, and food historians believe that one of the reasons why that, that information was held in Texas and throughout the American South is because, you know, plantations owners wanted to um they wanted one more <laughs> free labor for one more, um, what do you want to call it, season. Harvest. Uh, yeah. Harvest. <laughs> so uh, many believe that that is one of the reasons why um, the, the information was, was, was held. So Juneteenth is a, a, a holiday rooted in Texas. And for generations, people who were born and raised in Texas celebrated and still continue to celebrate it. And as Black Americans migrated during the Great Migrations to other parts of the U.S. You you saw or you still see Juneteenth celebrations because we know that all people, um, you know, when we leave or we go away from our home or our homeland, we take our traditions with with us. So that's mm -hmm. why you see a Juneteenth celebration in a park in Brooklyn or in, you know, Seattle or Oakland or L.A. is because of the, of the Great Migration and people taking those traditions, food traditions, and other traditions around Juneteenth with them. Right, right. It's And then just in two years ago, President Biden actually signed it, uh, Juneteenth, the act, uh, making it an official national holiday. Right? Actually, last year. It wasn't two years oh, ago. It was like, oh, 21. Right. 21, yeah. It was, it was an amazing moment. I honestly, Linda... Um, I didn't think that Juneteenth would be a national holiday this quickly. I, I didn't think that Juneteenth would be a nationally recognized holiday. Uh, this quickly, she says, it's 150 some odd years. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think it would be nationally recognized. I mean, here's the thing. And since 1979, you have people like uh, Texas State Representative Al, Mr. Juneteenth Edwards, who lobbied mm -hmm. in Texas um, to have Juneteenth as a state holiday, and he was successful. There are so many people like Miss Opal Lee and other folks' names that are known and unknown who have uh, been raising the flag to get more recognition on, Ju on Juneteenth. So um, I cried. I cried looking I'm at sure. uh, President Biden sign... Um, the act it has a long name. It's not like National June, you know Juneteenth holiday. And Miss Opal Lee, I mean, to see a ninety-something-year-old retired school teacher who dedicated the second half of her life on making Juneteenth a national holiday, it was just symbolic of like 
so many elders and so many black people, both working class, middle class, everyone who, you know, wants to see America or fully recognize the contributions of black people. Um, so, yeah, it was an amazing moment. Indeed. And uh, and it's so exciting that you were able to to complete this book and have this come out at this time that, you know, and, and people can really make, make people who haven't been cognizant of the date and the time, you know, sit back and take note and have their own little celebration. I think it's, you know, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a yeah. great thing. Yeah. Well, we were talking about tradition. You were talking about traditions and you leave your home and you take your traditions with you. I mean, that happens in, you know, in so many cultures mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that, that these, that these holidays spread. Um, and I think it's interesting since this celebration is about, it's summertime. And so it's out and who, when there's a big celebration, who doesn't celebrate with food, right? And of course, there's always a, it's always a celebration. It's a cookout. It's a, you know, it's a time to come together and, and eat and drink and be merry. And, and uh, the food becomes as much tradition as, as the reason for the holiday. But you've kind of broken away from that just a little bit. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You put your own spin on it. And uh, I, I think what I love are some of the comments that, um, that were made about your book. Michael Twitty, of course, you know, chimes in and says that you exemplify soul food as construct rather than a canon. And I think rather than canon. And, and I think that's so important because people probably say, oh, well, Juneteenth is we're going to have a celebration. It's going to be all soul food. Well, you know, call it what you want, but you've got your, it, these are all modern recipes and modern dishes, you know, and I, I think that's terrific. And as well, Tony Tipton Martin writes that you liberate us from the limitations and labels that have narrowly defined African-American cooks and their cooking for generations. And I think that that says so much about it, anyone who leaves through the celebration. There's not one recipe for mac and cheese in there, right? Not one recipe <laughs> for mac and cheese. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, I, that I, it's a, not that it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, you can, you can get my first cookbook and, and, and get my mac and cheese recipes. You know, I mean, like, I have a lot to say to really like unpack um, the comments and what you're getting at. And I'm going to first start off by acknowledging Frida DeKnight. Frida DeKnight mm -hmm. was a food editor at Ebony Magazine in the 1950s. And uh, her one of her most seminal, I think, what people know her most by is the Ebony Cookbook. And when you open up the Ebony Cookbook, it is a cookbook that looks at black cookery not in the way that people expect in 1950s. Um, she has recipes from uh, lamb to hors d'oeuvres for dinner parties. It is a book that is rooted in, in black life and black culture, but she also is very much aware that black people aren't a monolith. Like, like mm -hmm. we are not eating celebration foods and what I or how many scholars and myself designs uh, describe or define celebration food. We're not eating mac and cheese every day. <laughs> and right. so in her cookbook, the Ebony cookbook, she did that. And um, she also wrote about and, and said that she wanted people to understand that 
Black Americans and Black home cooks like myself, we're interested in making Thai food at home. We're interested in making, you know, all types of cuisines. We're not, don't just put us in a box. And so there have been so many excellent cookbooks that have come out in modern times. Like, you know, um, Bryant Terry has a whole canon of cookbooks dedicated to vegan food and vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. There have been people like um, Grand Baby Cakes, uh, Jocelyn Delk Adams that has a whole book dedicated to desserts. Uh, of course, Jessica Harris has a whole canon of cookbooks. I mean, in the last two years, there have been a plethora of Black chefs and Black home cookbooks that are, have told their story around their families and modern Black cookery. So I wanted to be a leader in what I call the 3.0 of Black food, and that is I think our black food and soul food has been defined and there's a lot of content out there about it. And like, there's so many opportunities for black chefs and food creators to literally show our, our artistry in a different way. And so I wanted to do it. I made sure though, that in watermelon and red birds, that all the recipes were rooted in the African-American table. And, And what that means is you see sweet potatoes in this book, but you don't see it in the, you know, roasted, uh, brown sugar, marshmallow on top, the <laughs> casserole that you get at Christmas time, or you don't see it in the form of a sweet potato pie. You see it in a cocktail. <laughs> you see it in a cocktail that is similar to aperitivo Italian culture. I have a sweet potato spritz where I make a sweet potato simple syrup and I add capoletti and vodka and sparkling white wine and a slice of orange. And that drink feels like summertime. And it Mm -hmm. also feels like, or tastes like um, hints of sweet potato pie with, you know, the sweet potato and, uh, and the warming spices that are in it. And another example would be, I mean, come on, when it's 90 degrees outside, I don't, know too many people who want a plate of like stewed down collard greens or kale. I mean, I love collards and kale, but that's kind of heavy for a, yeah. a outdoor gathering, right? And right. so it was important to me to acknowledge how important greens are um, in the Black, Black American food experience, but I just t- did my own twist. And that was to take the superfood or the super greens and create a pesto. Um, and so mm-hmm. you have a pesto. I have a pesto in the salad chapter with plums and nectarines and fonio. Or if you can't find fonio, you can use couscous. So, yeah, I was determined just to be creative in this book. But it, it's definitely started out as making sure that I, I, I centered and, and rooted myself on the traditions I grew up on. Um, and many of those traditions are rooted in, in, in the Black American table. Right. Well, and that's, it's interesting because even though, you know, two other comments, I think that were, that come beautifully back to back, one from Lola Zelli, he said, you give an, an impressive array of new recipes for a new generation. And then J.J. Johnson on the heels of that says, S- but you stay true to the culture, which you just described. Oh, oh. And I think that's, I think that's so well said that you really, you, you know, you identify the fact that yes, this is back, this is our, 
past. This is our, our, you know, the base. And now we're going to expand upon that. Come on. There's so many, I mean, so nice to see that, that, you know, you're bringing out recipes that, you know, have entered the 21st century and look at all the modern black chefs. I mean, they're, as you said, they're cooking and even back, even, you know, 200 years ago, let's go to Hercules. I mean, they, you know, cooking French foods and modern foods and, and, then again, there's that problem with traditions. I'm sure that you probably do hear it from some people when you don't put out the standard dishes on the table, right? Of course. I hear it every I hear it every Christmas <laughs> or Thanksgiving if I don't have the same old dishes. Yeah, yeah I so. mean, listen, I think that, you know, just like my cookbook, my celebrations throughout the year uh, mirror the cookbook. I mean, listen, I stick with the classes because I know people want, they want their cornbread dressing at Thanksgiving time. So I try not to deviate. Uh, but every now and most times, I'm not even going to say every now and then, every celebration, I try to sneak in something a little different, like my radish and ginger pound cake. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I mean, people love pound cake, right? I feel like at the holidays, at Juneteenth, the summer months, many celebrations, people expect what I call the church lady pound cake. And that's usually like sour cream. It's either lemon. It's very buttery. It's great. Uh, But I've been playing around for years with my uh, cream cheese pound cake recipe that I got from my aunt in my twenties. I sometimes I make it straight up like she gave it to me. And then like in my new cookbook, I decided like, hey, what if I kind of make this feel like something you can have in the morning? That's how that was my original thought. Uh I wanted to create something savory. um, But then I came back to let me just keep it sweet and add this radish, cream and ginger. There is grated radish in the cake, but it cooks off a bit in the cake. So you just get a little of the texture. But in my opinion, the brightness is all in the whipped cream. And so I tested it out with folks and people loved it. Even my mom. Well, <laughs> it's an tester. Yeah. And I'm anxious to try it. That and the and the strawberry sumac cake. I mean, ah. I think though I want I'm I, I can't wait to try both of those because I love cakes, cakes. We're gonna talk a lot about more cakes, cakes when we come back after a quick break. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tejona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best-tasting, highest-quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind-tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced, with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 
818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Nicole Taylor, the author of the brand new book, uh, <laughs> brand, new book brand new book that I can't even think of the title because it's so wonderful, is Watermelons and Redbirds, and it's a, a celebration of Juneteenth, recipes for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. And it's nice that you didn't keep it limited, I mean, because all celebrations, you know, weird times I mentioned earlier in the show that, you know, involve and revolve around food and Juneteenth specifically, but these are these are celebration foods that can be used for all kinds of different celebrations. But but drinks, the red bird. Okay, let's talk about the red bird. Ah, the red bird. Listen, there are so many people that know the red bird story. And uh let me just tell people the red bird story before. And you have to tell me, Linda, if you've heard the story before. All right. Uh so I would be sitting outside in um uh, our family home in Athens. And my mom would say, look out the window, look out the window. There's a red bird. And I would see the red bird and she was like, blow the red bird a kiss. It's someone in our family coming back to say hello. Um, that's good luck. Anytime you see a red bird, that's good luck. Those are the ancestors coming back. They're protecting you. And I remember that story so clearly, but then I forgot that story until one day I was riding on MTA coming, trying to like brainstorm what this cookbook could be titled. And I was like, my Juneteenth and Jubilee. I was like, no, I can't do Jubilee. That's Tony's <laughs> book. And then I'm like, wait, Redbirds. I'm like, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's symbolic of the past, of the present and the future. Like, ooh, this is so perfect. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm going to have red birds in the title of this cookbook and I want watermelon because watermelon is like a classic American fruit. It is, it has African origins, but who doesn't love a slice of watermelon, no matter who you are, uh, you want a slice in the summer months. So mm -hmm. that's it. Watermelon and red birds. Uh, I remember my colleagues and friends saying, eh, sounds like a novel. I love the title, but you sure you want to do that for a cookbook? I'm like, yes. I'm sure. Uh, and every time I tell the story, either people are like moved or all types of people um, from my Jewish friends in New York will say like, oh, yes, I've heard that story. My mom collects red birds or I've met folks who are from Mississippi and they're white and they've heard the story. 
I've spoken to indigenous people who've heard that story. Actually, during my research about the proverb or that story, it has indigenous or Native American origins. So um, it is a story that I think is very American and in so many ways um, and very fitting. Uh, I have never and, and I have never heard the story before it particularly with the red bird, with other other birds, other, you know, but not with the red bird. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant that you used it. Um, and the fact that it's, your friend said, sounds like a novel, I think that <laughs> makes it even better. <laughs> that makes it terrific. Um, and it's just, it's what a, what a wonderful metaphor for, you know, for this celebration and for, um, for the, the book. Um, and also, it has a lot, makes me think about the red bird and what, what are the, because what I wanted to say is what are some of the, ask you is, what are some of the standard dishes that pretty much have to be on the table and that you have obviously, you know, taken liberties with, not liberties, but you've just modernized and put your own, put your own twist on it. What, and red drinks, number one, I'm going to just say it off. So it has, <laughs> there has to be a red drink, right? There has to be a red drink. Listen, so I, I actually developed organize the book that each chapter or most of the chapters are what I consider essentials of Juneteenth, like the red drink. Um, cookout and barbecue foods is an essential of Juneteenth. The potato green and fruit salad, the sides, that is an essential of Juneteenth. Ice cream, ice pops, snow cones are essentials and cakes are essentials. And then I have two other chapters that weave in or fit into the Juneteenth narrative. But those are the things that I consider must for Juneteenth. And first, you know, you everyone wants to talk about the red drink. And I start <laughs> the cookbook. <laughs> the first chapter is dedicated to red drinks. And at first I was like, am I really doing a whole chapter on red drinks? Can I do a whole chapter on red drinks? Do I have enough recipes? And mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, red <laughs> drinks are... I didn't even know this, but they are like what binds black people globally. And Mm -hmm. if you go to Senegal in West Africa, the national drink is Bisop. And it's steeped hibiscus pods, steeped in water and sweetened and spices added. If you go to Martinique, you find that same drink and it's called sorrel. If you go to Brazil, you find that drink, that same drink. And if you go to North Africa, you see the same exact drink. So that drinking ritual and that colored um, tea, I like to believe, and many scholars have traced that ritual to um, the transatlantic slave trade and the Americas. And when you open up plantation cookbooks, the first thing you see where writers are documenting enslaved people's work in the kitchen and their daily lives, you see that um, the pantries and the ice boxes or what we would call fruit refrigerators are stocked with like cherry liqueurs, strawberry shrubs, all kind of red colored things to make soft drinks and hard drinks. And then you'll even see um, passages saying that the enslaved people had a celebration and there was like a big 
foot tub or a big container of strawberry lemonade. So I like to believe that red, the color red and the drinking of red drinks is something that has happened for generation after generation. I grew up always seeing a punch bowl of, of something red at celebrations. If it wasn't a punch bowl, it was a red soda or red Kool-Aid. Um, mm-hmm. And that tradition has just, you know, stood the test of time. Um, so it was important for me to ground red drinks. And so many people um, across the globe who are black and black Americans and particularly black Americans who've been celebrating Juneteenth, the first thing they say is you got to have a, a red drink. And in Texas, <laughs> they love big red. That's a um, it's actually a soda that's really popular. I think it's still made. Um, and then other Texans have said they love the Fanta strawberry cream soda. So, mm-hmm. right. That, wow, that's it's uh, that's a wonderful. I mean, it's it's not, traditions are nice. I think they're, you know, they they make you think. They make you stop and think, and think back about you know the things that maybe we may have forgotten, like that old relative coming back in form of a bird. You see, <laughs> flying totally. in your totally. backyard. Yeah, but then you know, I I look at some things that seem like modern twists that you have, and realize well, it's not. But that's not so modern at all. You're actually bringing back something that uh, maybe people forgot about. And then I'm thinking foraging. Oh. You, you, or as as Dr. <laughs> Cynthia Greeley said, going shopping in the woods. But <laughs> you bring back so many wonderful things. Well, sumac. We've already mentioned the strawberry yeah. sumac cake. I mean, come on. That's so innovative. That's so wonderful. But yet... You're using sumac, sumac, lemon verbena blossoms, marigolds. Um, uh, what else? Something, some, not horseradish, not radish flowers. Some some other flowers you had in there. Violets. I mean, violets, anything. Yeah. I mean, this is something that people have done and did out of necessity, but also out of a, you know, out of a feeling of, of wanting something natural. But you do a lot of, of use of, of wild foraged Maybe they're not so wild anymore, but, you know, yeah. of items. Thanks for recognizing that. Yeah, it's, it's funny because when I, I just I just left the farmer's market, I spend a lot of time at farmer's market. I spend a lot of time anywhere food, food <laughs> yeah. right? Grocery stores. I know about bodegas. that. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm sure, Linda, you look down and see, like, a small container of edible flowers would be, like, $10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're gorgeous. I mean, edible flowers... Um, which can be forged. A lot of them, uh, they really jazz up ordinary food. And so I use a lot of edible flowers throughout the book. Um, But the word foraging and um, the growing, I wouldn't even call it fad or the growing curiosity around foraging is, um, (laughs) it, it, it puts a smile on my face because growing up, I never heard of the word foraging. I just <laughs> knew that my great aunt would go across the street and pick poke salad, um, mm-hmm. which is a right. wild, um, I guess, flower that you use to stalk. But you have to be very careful about when you pick it because it's poisonous if it's too early. And I write about this in my first cookbook because uh, I have a poke salad frittata in there. Um mm-hmm. But you can easily uh, substitute it with like Swiss chard or what have you. But 
my aunt didn't say, I'm going foraging now. <laughs> she just went and did it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it just was what it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so that piece that Cynthia Greenlee, Dr. Cynthia Greenlee, who's who's a wonderful friend and colleague, um, it was it just hit home because I, I I was like, Yeah, I get it. I grew up seeing that. Um, I grew up hearing it but it never registered until I moved to New York years later. So you, you see it in my cookbook, um, this cookbook, Watermelon and Red Birds, particularly in the sumac chapter, because I love sumac. I love sumac a lot. Um, I feel like it's one of those herbs that people associate with um, Middle Eastern food, and it is mm -hmm. very much an herb. So um, that's connected to Middle Eastern traditions, but it's also very much um, a part of the Native American pantry. And right. so I, I talk about that in the head note. And so I pay homage to the connection between Black people in the American South and, and, and Indigenous people with the strawberry sumac cake. Um, it's great. <laughs> I right. love that cake. And I played around, I don't say it in, the, in this first edition of the book. I think this first edition um, do I have white flour or cornmeal? I've done it so many different ways. I think I originally did rye flour and then I was like, it's a little too dry. It's hard to find. And I wanted to make sure with this cookbook that at least 90% of the, the, the ingredients were accessible, meaning you could go to your Met food, um, or your Kroger or public or your regional or local grocery store and find stuff. So, um, I, I went back to cornmeal. So this cake now is, is a cornmeal based cake and sumac. You can pretty much crazily. It's, it's, it's everywhere now. It's it not is, hard I mean, to find the ingredient. <laughs> right. I mean, you have to, there are some versions that aren't edible, but you can, yeah, you can just, you can pick it off all those bushes that wild bushes that just grow everywhere. Um, but then you have to dry it and crumble it and it's easier to buy it already processed. Yeah. If you're feeling adventurous yeah. and you, um, I mean, there are plenty of companies and people now that are doing foraging tours. You can forage for sumac. Uh, but you know, listen, I talk a lot in this book about like, you don't have to go foraging, nor do you have to make all of my spice blends. I'm giving people alternatives because we're all busy. You know, That's we're right. all busy right. and, you know, every now and then, listen, I, I, I'm not foraging uh, every fall for, for fall for sumac. I'm buying it from companies that I've listed in, in the front of the book. The, there's a section where I have black indigenous and POC food brands. And I mentioned Diaspora Co. And I buy sumac from them. I love their sumac. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of good products. They, they have, do. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting, a lot of ethnic, in a lot of ethnic communities around just the outskirts of the city, or even in the city, even to go to the parks, you'll see some of the members of these, and I say ethnic communities, because they're the people who, you know, grew up using these things that they couldn't buy in the market, you know, and they, and they forage everything from, um, what, ramps to, you know, to wild asparagus to, as you said, the poke flowers, leaves, and, you know, it's, it, there's an appreciation for what is out there, you know, when you can find it. But uh, and sumac is, and I can't wait to try the sumac cake. The radish one really threw me, but you know, <laughs> but then I think, but then I started to think about it. Well, you know, ginger has that peppery flavor, like a radish almost. So it's sort of they're they're complementing one another, and I can't wait to try both of them. Yeah, and the color, of, great recipes. the color in the cream. I mean, one of the reasons to. Um, 
why I chose to do a breakfast radish or what I call just the regular supermarket radish is because it gives you a very vibrant color. Like when you shred it, you get these red flecks in your, in your whipped cream. And so you can play around with other colors, but it's, it's cool. It gives it almost of a citrus. I described it to someone. It's like, if you put a little lemon zest in your, or a lot of lemon zest in your whipped cream, that's, that's what I feel that the fresh ginger and, and um, radish is doing for the cake. And I'm going to do that in my whipped cream just for, something else altogether. Mm. You know, just, <laughs> well, okay. Let giving me, know. me a good hint. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, for those of you out there who have yet to look into this book and I encourage you all because the recipes are all delectable and, and, and easy. I mean, you're not, it's not like a, you know, a huge long list of ingredients. They're all accessible, but don't be surprised to see some interesting ingredients that you might not expect like dukkha, or fish sauce, or, I mean, you know, you, I mean, you are, you're stretching the boundaries of what people I think would ordinarily expect to see in the list of ingredients. And I think it's wonderful. I mean, listen, I feel like fish sauce, you can find fish sauce at your average everyday grocery store now. And I also wanted to show and be sincere about how I cook and what's in my pantry. Um, and fish sauce is in my pantry and I am constantly making my own dukkha. Or if I see a new product from someone and they're making dukkha, I buy it. So I wanted it to be true to who I was and who I am and also reflect like what America looks like now. Like, um, that's right. <laughs> and reflect my family and friends and people who are sitting around my table. And so, um, yeah, I love Red Boat. <laughs> I keep all <laughs> things Red Boat in, in my pantry. So I wasn't going to change the way I did my pretzel crusted chicken cutlet um, because I was doing this Juneteenth cookbook. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put Red Boat in here. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that's what I did. And I was so glad to see that you you use you know pretzels that you had a pretzel pretzel crust because I think it's so often overlooked. People always just reach for the breadcrumbs, you know. And I think this was the pretzel crumbs are have so much depth. I think that's wonderful. That was an accident, was, Linda. Was it really? I, I literally was. I ran out of um, breadcrumbs. I had no bread. I had no. I mean, usually I make my own breadcrumbs, and I'll even you know I always keep some panko. And I had. I didn't have any. And I was like, okay, I have these pretzels that my son didn't eat. Uh, let me just use this. Yep. <laughs> I, and it was, I, I was done testing the book and then I, I made those. I was like, well, I have to change this whole entire thing and make these pretzel crusted. But yeah, oh, that yeah. was an accident. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, I think the Times uh, published several years ago a, a recipe for pretzel topped brownies or something oh. like that. And it, you know, it was it was this mad craze. It was wonderful. And uh, then they, then somebody came out with pretzel buns, you know, rather than regular oh, yeah. hamburger buns. And I mean, it just a new appreciation for pretzels, but cake, but I, I, I don't want us to get too far away from cakes here. Um, we talked about family, something your son had to eat. And I, the son, your son's pictures in this book are adorable even though i know he's growing up fast already but yeah he is. <laughs> yeah they're great i mean it's I so am- it was so important to have him in the book he's i mean that was over a year ago when we shot that and when i look at the photo and just think about you know 20 years from now how 
he's going to look at this book and, and say, how old was I here? And, <laughs> yeah. and see his dad in the book um, at the grill. You don't see me in this, in the, in the first printing. I ha- I added a picture in the second printing and on purpose, I didn't want too many pictures of my celebration because I didn't want this to be solely about me. These are my recipes, but I wanted people to envision themselves and their families at the table um, yeah. and not make it just solely about me. I'm not trying to be this lifestyle person. I just want to kind of tell my story and hope that it triggers um, something in other people to talk to their families about Juneteenth or start celebrating Juneteenth for the first time. Or if you're right. a person um, who was an ally and you're figuring out like, what is Juneteenth? How do I fit in? Why is this important to America? I wanted to make sure that I wasn't in the frame <laughs> of every <laughs> single recipe, like give, giving people room to think about that, you know? Yeah. Well, I think we should all celebrate Juneteenth. It's not 100%. You know, limited. Yeah. Uh, but I did recognize your hands, Nicole. I would recognize <laughs> your hands anywhere. <laughs> yes. Uh, my good. hands are in there. Yeah. But I want to talk about cake. Cake, 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 as you said. Okay. Pies too, maybe. But cake, cake, cake. But cake has, it sort of has a bittersweet background too. And talking about, you know, the, the cake walk, you know, the cake celebrations during the times of slaves. I mean, uh, you said something was so nice to that Juneteenth, you know, well, baking usually involves a lot of work. Right? And you, well, I think more pies, more work than cakes, probably, but baking in general. And you wrote that you're reminded that Juneteenth didn't symbolize the end of work, rather, it signified working for yourself and working for your loved ones rather than for someone else's loved ones without pay. And that that's that's a reason to make a cake or make a pie. I think yeah. that's that's really terrific. I mean, and by the way, it. yeah. Cake Go ahead. dessert making is a skill. I feel like I'm an intuitive cook. I'm a person that, I mean, let's be honest, I don't necessarily need a recipe for every single thing. But mm-hmm. when I start baking, uh, I need to follow instructions. It's it's everyone that can cook cannot bake. Wouldn't you That's say right. so? It's a little more of a science, yeah. A little totally. bit more. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, but- and it's and it's so funny that so many people um would say that enslaved folks weren't smart enough to uh to work to bake cakes and pies because they couldn't <laughs> read or write. And I'm like, well, how? Well, how did we get so many layer cakes and so many traditions? And we know that that, that was not true and that, you know, um, people like Anne Byrne, who has written about American cakes, American right. pies, I use a lot of her books to, like, make sure that um, I honored American, all American tr- traditions in terms of cakes and pies. But she talks about it. I, I mean, I literally said in here, I put a quote from her book. She said in the yeah, decades leading, yeah, in the decades leading up to the Civil War, the fine food of the plantations would not have been possible without the creativity, hard work, and skill of enslaved cooks who cracked coconuts, caramelized sugars, shift, sifted flours, ground sh- sugar. And whipped eggs without the modern conveniences we have today. I mean, right. listen, I I don't know how to ground sugar. <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> if it's delivered to you in a block, as it used to be years ago, centuries ago, yeah, you'd have to grind it. Yeah, you'd have to grind it off the block. But like when the brown sugar gets too hard because you left the package open, you know, 
that's, that's hard work. It is hard work. Yeah. yeah, and listen, so I made sure, you know, um, what you see a lot in this book, and I don't know if you noticed it, Linda, I'm sure you did. I just oppose some very sad, dark reality with, mm -hmm. with joy, like yes. with joy and celebration. So um, I wanted to make sure, and I hope throughout Watermelon and Red Birds that I balance, um, you know, American history and American culture with um, celebration, with celebration, with, cel with joy and hugs and sweet memories. Yeah, I think you did. And you did it very, very nicely. And you, what you did was remind us all that, and, and Michael Twitty even mentioned this too, when he read your book and uh, what his comments about your book, that you remind us all that after all, it's a celebration of freedom. So, you know, it should be, we should look on the brighter side now and let's move forward and, but without forgetting and, you know, remember, remember, but now, and believe me, the other thing that I can't wait to run out and try, because you had me right away, is the devil's food icebox cake. Okay, I just had to mention that one, because that just, that got me. Uh, that That's definitely one, one for me to go to and try. But your everyday, as you say, your everyday Juneteenth, you, I mean, it has to be an everyday celebration and not just one day of the year. Yeah. I think I congratulate you. I think you did a, a marvelous job. Thank you, Lynn. And, I appreciate it. Oh, and by it. the way, and by the way, this morning, for people who don't know, as we're recording this on a day that your um, wonderful article about the celebration and the recipes in the book appeared on the front page of the food section of the New York Times. And there is a picture in the article of your grandmother, your maternal grandmother. And Nicole, you are a spitting image. Let me oh tell you. Oh my gosh, someone else said that. Nikita Richardson. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you I have guess. to see my aunt, my mom's sister. She looks exactly like her. And huh. you know what's so funny? That's the only picture that my mother and my two aunts have of their mother. She died very young. They were like four and five years old. There were four of them. So they were very young. And my grandfather was remarried. But that's the only photo they have. And so <laughs> I was, you know, directing my mom the last two weeks uh, to find the photo. Well, she had the photo to actually go to FedEx, scan the photo so I could get it in the New York Times. And I, I text a dear friend who's in L.A. right now. I said, Wow, who would think that my blue collar, hardworking, very hardworking um, grandparents would be in the New York Times? Me talking <laughs> about freedom. Yeah. Uh, it was. I, I'm not gonna lie. I I shed a tear. Oh, that's gotta that's gotta choke you up for sure. Yeah. I did too. I mean, that, I have to say it. It really moved me. I mean, just to yeah. to think about think of, that's that's you know that's history. All of us have have that history in some way. You know. And, and to, to think you, about all the sacrifices, you know, of, of of so many people, Texans, my own mother, my grandparents, um, my grandfather fought in the Korean War. Like, I think that all Americans want, we want, um, I hope that all Americans want um, their children and their children's children to live in a place where people are free and that people are thriving and happy and surviving. Um, so yeah, I, I tear up when I um, reread that New York Times. It was a beautiful, book. it was a beautiful photo and, and um, 
and thought about your grandmother. It was great. But you also wrote something about your mother in, I think, in the book, I guess, um, about your how your days differ from how your mother's days were. Yeah, totally. And your mother would just push, she'd work and work and work. Oh, yeah. My mom does not know rest, you know. Um, mm -hmm. She worked for 40 years in a chicken poultry plant. Um, in Athens, she never, it, it was supposed to be a job just to get her over. She graduated from high school in 1972. She did some technical training. Um, she's a very smart woman who, um, you know, she had me and decided that uh, she was just going to work a few years and try something different. But that few years turned into 40 years. And mm. I went off to college and moved away. My mom had part-time jobs. I remember her like literally sending me her paycheck from her part-time mm. job with my name on the back. So um, my mom has worked her fingers to the bone for a long time. Um, and now she's slowing down, whatever that means. I'm like, you need to relax, mom, like stay at home and rest sometimes. But I look at myself and I look at her and just see that um, I get the hard work, the work ethic from her. Yeah. But still, I mean, like I have alarm set every day at 2.30 so I can make sure I go and take a coffee break and like leave my house or relax and listen yeah, to music. My mom didn't smart. have, she didn't have that same. She did not have that same convenience and it's not lost on me. Um, and so when I wrote in the Everyday Juneteenth chapter in the essay um, about her, it was a reminder to, for all of us to um, take a pause and to understand our privilege um, and to really reflect on the small victories in our lives um, when we can. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful thought and wonderful. We're going to close with that. A wonderful thought and wonderful book. And I encourage people to take a look at it, cook from it, and and think about all the wonderful things you wrote in it as well. It's called Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black Celebrations by Nicole Miller. Uh, no, Nicole Miller. Nicole Taylor. Nicole, <laughs> Nic I'm looking, I'm saying, I have to remember to say the middle initial because there are lots of Nicole Taylors. Nicole A. Taylor. Nicole Taylor. Nicole, I miss you. It was I so know. much fun to talk to you. Yeah. See you soon, and Linda. We will definitely have to arrange to see each other soon. Okay. And I thank all of you for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.